I was okay when the words were switching, but I don't know what to do when that little birdie came on. I wasn't sure. <laughs> don't be don't be upset with the folks in the booth. That stuff gets away from you really quick. That can be really frustrating. So I'm I'm thankful that they're willing to do that stuff every week. That's that's very helpful to us. Over the next seven weeks leading up to Easter. We want to see Jesus. We want to hear Him speaking in His Word. The Gospel of John is is almost structured around seven statements from Jesus, seven um, self-disclosing statements. Each of those statements is worth its own book, much less a few sermons, but we'll try to turn these diamonds over in our minds and see as much as we can. I, I, I love to read... Uh, the Bible, of course, but I love to read books about Jesus and hear music about Jesus, and I love uh, even some of the movies they've made about Jesus. But if, if you really want to get close to Jesus, you need to let Him speak for Himself. And that's what these statements are. There is life in these statements. There is healing and rest for our souls in these statements. There is the forgiveness of sins and the gift of righteousness, perfect righteousness in these statements. These are the words of eternal life from the word of eternal life. And I think it would do our souls good to have an even clearer picture this year of the one who burst out of the grave on Easter Sunday morning. And we find the first uh, of these statements in John chapter 6, the day after uh, Jesus fed a crowd of at least 5,000 people with a boy's lunch, five barley loaves and two fish. And that doesn't mean he divided them up into super tiny pieces. There was so much that there were leftovers. And I believe God's word with all of my heart when he said to us in Colossians 1.20 that everything was made through Jesus and for Jesus. Everything God made exists to serve Jesus. It was all made for him, even bread, even food. So Jesus didn't come to be the guide to other things that we think will give us life. Jesus didn't come to assist us on our search for life. Jesus came to be life. And in John 6 this morning, Jesus fed the crowds and walked on water to proclaim His all-sufficiency as Savior. Jesus did not come ultimately to give bread, but to be bread. Would you stand with me if you're able as we read just a portion of this section from God's Word? I'll begin at verse 32 of John 6 and read to 35. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. Father, watch over our souls this morning as we sit under your word. Enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit to understand the words of our Savior. Watch over my mind. Father, guide my mouth so that I proclaim Him clearly. 
Give us grace to do the one thing this morning that you will accept. Believe on the one you sent. I ask for this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, everyone. Very rarely, uh, if ever, were the miracles of Jesus isolated from his teaching. In other words, Jesus didn't just go around doing random, isolated, amazing things. Jesus was mainly a preacher. So his, his miracles acted as signs to point to who he was and what he came to do. And the first I am statement of Jesus comes on the heels of what might be his most well-known miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And remember, that's just counting the men. right? That's, that's how they counted. The actual size of the crowd most likely would have been much larger. But then in this same text, there's another miracle here that takes place in between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' discourse the next day that is just as important for understanding His words as the provision of the food is. So let's walk through these two events so that we get the context of what Jesus is saying here. All 71 verses, it's a long chapter, all 71 verses of this chapter are about bread. Jesus as bread. Look at verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So John lets us know right away that Jesus, uh, what Jesus has been doing is the reason that a large crowd is following him. And it would be the same today if there was somebody that could do these things. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. So Jesus' original intention was to teach his disciples, but he's about to see, we'll see in verse 5, that a large crowd is coming toward him. Now, it's the Passover. This is the second Passover in John's Gospel, but he isn't telling us that for chronological reasons. The point here is theological. The Passover was the meal remembering when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. So there's a lot to the imagery here. If we look at chapter 6, in light of the fact, if you know John's Gospel, that Jesus has been presented right out of the gate in John as the Lamb of God who takes away, who will be sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. When we remember that, we start to get John's point, that Jesus Christ is the true and final Passover lamb to be sacrificed. But remember, Passover also took into account that whole period in the history of Israel, how God provided for His people. And here, as John has been showing us that Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament symbols and types and pictures, Jesus is going to show that He supersedes the manna that was given to Israel in the wilderness. Jesus is also the true and final bread from heaven. The Passover preceded the Exodus when God led His people out of bondage and slavery and death through the water of the Red Sea of freedom and then into the wilderness where He rained down bread from heaven to feed them. Passover for Israel in particular at this time and in many ways, or in some ways it still is, is like July 4th to Americans. It was filled with national pride and zeal. It was a time when Israel remembered that they were God's people and He had made these promises to them and so they would get amped up during this time. And here comes a man onto the scene into the middle of all that 
who can do miracles, who has extraordinary power. No wonder the crowd was so large. And so it's not hard to imagine how this is going to turn out. Maybe this will be the man that will bring Israel back to national prominence and get rid of the Romans. And so we pick it up in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet, the one Moses promised, who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus gave a sign in the multiplying of these loaves that he himself is the bread from heaven. Not mainly that he can make enough bread to feed everybody. Raw power or ability was not the point of the miracle. The miracle was a sign. Signs point to something. And signs are not the something that they're pointing to. Why would we get fixated on just the sign? If my family and I were traveling to Disney World and somewhere through Georgia we saw a sign that said, Disney World, this many miles, would it make any sense whatsoever for us to pull over, get out, jump around, celebrate, get in the car and go home? No. That, that, that would make zero sense. It would, it would qualify my family for evaluation, to say the least. That would, why would you ever do that? The crowd saw this miracle, though, and they fixated on the product of it rather than the person who had done it. Skip down quickly to verse 26. He says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Why would Jesus be upset that you were seeking him? If you're seeking him as useful. If you're seeking him for the bread, for the money, for the national prominence and stability, for the potential prosperity, for the healed marriage, or whatever it is, etc., etc. They didn't see the miracle as a sign. They saw it as the point. But Jesus was not that kind of king. He would not be a king for people that thought that way. And he still isn't a king for people who think about him that way. He's not to be appropriated for our national interests. Yes, he came to bless us in some measure now, absolutely. But his main purpose is to be our Savior, to forgive our sins, to clothe us with his righteousness and seal us forever. So they missed it. They didn't see that at all. The point of the multiplying food was 
to get them to say, who is this that can multiply bread with a simple word and a prayer? Who are you? Who can do this? Not, that's the ticket. That's what we need right there. And that's what it was. Look at verse 16 through 21 now. And again, we're surveying this passage. There's so much that can be said here. But verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And I do think that's putting it mildly. This was in a deep valley. The wind would get in there and kick up the water, and it would have, it was, it was terrifying. The storms here could be terrifying. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. Love that that's just the sentence walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So the rest of the chapter here, all of chapter 6, is going to explain the feeding of the 5,000. But this miracle, this little uh, insertion here, is, is never mentioned again. So what's the purpose of this miracle in the bread story? What does it have to do with this section? Notice that they see him. They're about three or four miles out from land in a storm and gladly welcome him into the boat. And the next thing you know, they're at the shore. Scene's over. There's not a word said about the storm stopping like in the other Gospels. That isn't here There's nothing about the waves going flat or a great calm and the wind ceasing. Nothing about the storm being conquered by Jesus. Here in John 6, that isn't the point. The point in John 6 is that Jesus got into the boat. Remember a few verses back when there were 12 baskets of leftovers for His disciples. How many disciples were collecting leftover pieces? 12. How many baskets of leftovers did they collect? 12. I don't think... That just got noticed after the fact. And Jesus was like, oh man, there's, there's 12 of you. You each get your own basket. That's, that worked out. What would be the point of Jesus making sure that over 5,000 people are fed from five loaves and two fish and there are exactly 12 baskets left over? Think for a minute if you were one of the people distributing the bread. You would probably keep thinking, as you look down, I'm going to run out of bread. There's not going to be enough. There's not going to be enough to go around here. How often in our lives do we feel like that? I can't do this. I can't keep going. I can't continue on. This isn't going to work. Or maybe this boat is going to sink. Right? That night, this boat is going to sink. I think the reason for following the leftover basket lesson with the boat lesson is to make sure we understand what the basket lesson means. If you have Jesus with you, there will always be enough for you. Always. We may not get rich. We may not get every prayer answered the way we want. All of our plans may not come to pass, but we will always have our basket. Just enough for you personalized to you by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. 
Jesus Christ has a basket for us right in the middle of our I can't do this anymore just as the ship is going down. My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. And that's enough riches to multiply barley loaves and fish literally into a feast and have leftovers. Remember the promises of God. Don't get sidetracked by forgetting that everything we think is a need is actually a need. Don't get sidetracked by those things. He knows what we need. We often don't. He does. It will be there. It will be there. Honestly, when was the last time God ran your life the way you thought He was supposed to? I mean, when does it ever, when does just the day ever go according to plan? Hardly. God always has a different providence for my day, for my life, for, for my kids, for my marriage. There's always a different providence working than what I thought or what I had planned. And if I didn't know that He was my shepherd, my father, my provider, how in the world could we stay sane? I think the point of the leftover baskets here is to say that He individually knows and provides for His own. Three or four miles out on the sea in the storm, where is Jesus? Where is He? He's up on the mountain praying. We're in the boat. I, I, I really thought He could provide. Did you see what He did earlier today? I thought we were safe with Him. And then there He is, walking on the water, right towards us. Because He will walk on water in the storm, beloved, to get to you. Absolutely. He'll bleed to death to get to you. Nothing will stop Him. There's a basket of grace and love and compassion and faithfulness and provision when we need it and when we think there isn't one for us. Even when the waves are on the boat and Jesus is three or four miles away, don't forget that He walks on water. Don't forget. So He gets in the boat. The story is over. I was listening to a sermon on this text the first time I heard it worded this way, that Jesus didn't come to give bread, but to be bread. And the preacher said, this is not a story about getting people out of storms. It's a story about getting Jesus in the boat. That's good truth. The presentation of who Jesus is then is building. We have two stories now that, that if we see them incorrectly, make us think all kinds of things that get us really excited. He, he, he can multiply food. He, he can walk on water. Imagine what He could do for all the needs that I have. Just imagine if I had this at my personal disposal, right? Well, that's exactly what they were thinking. That's what's happening in the text. Let's keep moving here. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum asking or seeking Jesus. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So a paragraph is given so that you and I know that the crowd he's about to talk to is the same crowd that he fed the day before. There's a lot of detail here. And this is hilarious. 
they went seeking him. They find him and are like, oh, hey, you're here also. That's crazy. That's, that's, that's what they did. They woke up. They got moving. Jesus and his disciples were gone. So they get in boats, go over to the other side of the sea to find them. It matters to John, which means it mattered to the Holy Spirit who inspired John that the crowd talking to Jesus today is the same crowd he fed yesterday. And they see him, and what are they thinking? You didn't, there was only one boat there last night, you didn't get into it, but your disciples did. How did you get over here? And it would have been so easy for Jesus to say, yeah, well, uh, I walked on water. That's how I got over here. Right? But he doesn't do that. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you say, oh, it's, uh, it's really not that big of a deal. I, um, I defy physics. But he doesn't say that. Why? Because of verse 15. That's why he doesn't say it, because he's going to say, what do they get? Oh, man, make this man king. Jesus isn't interested in that kind of following at all. So we read this in verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Now, we're getting into it. Right? Jesus says to them, don't labor for things that perish. Right? That's what they're doing. That's why they're passionate and adamant to get to the other side of the sea where this same guy might be. Because they labor for the food that perishes. They desire things that will pass away. And Jesus says, don't try everything you can to get over to the other side of the sea because you're seeking those things. Right? It's a very powerful text. Don't labor for things that perish. Don't labor for things that perish. He doesn't nuance it at all. At all. See, Jesus doesn't nuance very much at all. What about my job? No, don't labor for things that perish. Right? Don't labor for riches. Don't labor for upward mobility. Don't labor for the praise of other people. Don't labor for a stable home on earth. Right? Don't, don't labor to earn your salvation or prove that you were worthy of it. Don't labor for things that perish. Don't work for those things. Don't try to find your salvation in things the world gives because those things perish. The point here is what is perishable and what is non-perishable. So do labor for the food that endures. Jesus gives that. And it provides you with eternal life. Wait a second here. Just pump the brakes a little bit. Labor for the food that endures to eternal life? That sounds awful. Work to gain eternal life? That's precisely how they heard Jesus. That's how they heard it. We still hear it like that. We hear the invitation and we think it's an invitation to a job through which you can earn your salvation. 
What does he mean? Labor for the food that endures to eternal life. Do I have to work my way into heaven? Do I have to labor to be good and labor to shun evil as hard as I can in the hopes that when all is said and done and the scales will tip in my favor and I will have done enough? Is that what you're asking or telling me to do? Because that's what we want Jesus to tell us to do. Let's not make any mistake here. We really, 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 really want it to be the law that gets us in. Because lists can be kept, they can be tracked, they can be measured, they can be verified. Faith is really hard and really nonspecific. But give me a list, I can check the boxes. That's what I'm good at. That's what I do, right? It's much easier than faith. Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You see it, labor for the food that endures. What must we do to be, uh, to have eternal life? Right? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the question. Jesus comes, we want to ask, okay, tell me what to do. What do I do? Verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Here it is. This is his chance. This is his chance to lay it all out, to be specific, to make sure nobody misunderstands that you believe in Him whom He has sent. What's the labor? The labor is to believe in Jesus. This is the work of God. The labor is faith. The labor is stop working to earn eternal life and trust the Son of God to give you eternal life. Now, if we were really honest, there probably isn't a person in here, me included, that is willing to take Jesus flatly at His word here. Right? Because if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Except when it comes to Jesus. I mean, you know, okay, I know, yes, you believe... But, I mean, you have to do something. Yes, you have to believe and stop working. We all have that older brother inside of us from the story of the prodigal son. We all have it. The party is going on with the redeemed by grace. And the Lord entreats us, come in and dance with us. Come in, all that I have is yours, come in. No, I work for what I get. Thank you very much. I work for what I get. This is not my kind of religion. This grace, that like it's free, and you don't measure what I do, and you don't care about what I do, and it's grace, like, like, I, 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 that's not my, that's not what I do. That's not how I work. I pay for my food. Sounds very noble. Our, our sense of nobility and responsibility has no part with Jesus Christ. None. None. Look at 30. So they said to him, now this is, this is amazing. What did Jesus just say in verse 29? That all you have to do is believe. That's it. Okay? That's the good news. Look at verse 30. So, so, because he said that, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, which, They just did. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Please notice. Please. 
that the pronouncement that you can cease your labor to get God's approval and just believe in His Son as your Savior and you will have eternal life does not satisfy or comfort this crowd at all. You, you realize that the gospel is not good news to those convinced they can work for it. The gospel is really bad news if you want some skin in the game. If you're a person that cannot take charity, the gospel is not good news because that's all it is. You think welfare can get unfair? This And even after what they saw the day before, now they want more proof. How can you miss what just happened? Right now, a couple verses ago, they're ready to take him by force and make him king, and now they're like, "Eh, "Really? I don't know about you, Jesus. I I, I don't know." Yeah, that's how we hear the gospel proclaimed. "Eh, I don't know. No, I don't know. Now we're not sure if you're really the king, come to think of it. You know what? Under Moses in the wilderness, bread fell from heaven and fed the people. Can you do that? Right? It's it's an amazing switch. What happened here? Why the turn? Why did the crowd turn? When Jesus made it clear that the bread miracle was not to show His power mainly, which is what you need to establish earthly kingdoms, you've got to have power when it became clear that that was not the point, that he was doing that to say something else, to show that he is the path to salvation, yeah, the, 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 the Romans are here. Like, what, what, why are you, what is this bread from heaven and believe? The Romans are here. Our lives are terrible here. Do you not see? Do you not care? They begin to realize he's not there to labor for the things of the world. That's not his priority. He didn't come to be a meal ticket to all those things we would want, whether we were Christians or not. Jesus has not come mainly to address our felt needs, but our real need. He sees it. And once it's clear that He is not useful for the felt needs, that those things are not His primary concern, the doubt creeps in and eventually the unbelief, because what good is He then? Right? What good is He? So the minute Jesus addresses the need we don't realize we have, at the expense of the only one we think we have, it's then the response is, can you do more? I mean, can you do something else? Can you do something better? Because you may not be what I need after all, and I need to see, I need to make sure. So prove it. After you just ate to your fill less than 24 hours ago from five loaves and two fish, doesn't matter what we see. Doesn't matter what the, the proof, it doesn't matter what we see. What matters, we determine what is true and worth and useful by what we want. Right? And it's into this position of the heart. It's into Unbelief that is like that, that Jesus Christ says these words in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In the first I am statement of Jesus around which John frames the flow of his gospel, Jesus proclaims that he is the source of life and salvation. That the bread was a sign. The bread was not the point. Jesus came not mainly to give bread, but to be bread. In other words, he didn't come to be useful. He came to be salvation. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to fill the real stomach that is empty because we are starving from laboring for food that perishes to fill a soul that is eternal. We are so willing to receive Jesus when we think He's useful. Right? We're so willing to take Him on as a genie that grants wishes, wishes, as a king that can multiply bread and fish. But then when we begin to realize that His power is present, mainly because through it He saves the uttermost of sinners, we no longer find Him useful. And we question His worth. We question His point. Where were you, Jesus? You couldn't handle that? You, you, you couldn't provide that? You couldn't heal that? I don't know about you anymore. If, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard somebody say to me, I just need proof, I just need something, I'd have a mess of nickels. Can we hear and receive the good news? Do we realize what the good news is this morning. Do do, do you and I realize what it is mainly that makes Jesus good for us? He just said, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, your soul will never be hungry Again, if you believe in me, your soul will never be thirsty again. Never hunger and never thirst means you and I will no longer have to work for anything. We will never have to work to be saved. We will never have to work to be accepted by God. We will never have to work to have life. Why? Because if we have Jesus, we have bread. We have life in Him. Jesus Christ did not come to be a pathway to other means of salvation, to other means of identity, to other means of meaning. That's not why He came. He came to be salvation. And it isn't that He doesn't care about our physical bodies or doesn't care about our physical needs. It's clear from the text that He cares when people are physically hungry. But His care is a window. His care is not a door. And through it, we're meant to see the One who is providing it. Beloved, all the good things 
that our bodies need and desire, they will come forever and they will come in surplus on the other side of the grave. After our resurrection, our resurrection will take away mourning and crying and hunger and depression and anxiety and sin, etc., etc. Our resurrection will take those things away forever. Forever. I can't wait. It will come. He is going to raise our bodies from the dead and make us perfect forever that we might enjoy Him in the fullness of our humanity one day. But that is not the main point of this world. To get those things now. God cares about our bodies. He won't throw them away. He will make them new. But He did not come to do that here through things that will always perish and always require replacement. He didn't come to cause all our physical desires to be satisfied. He came to save us because our desires kill us. They kill us in the search to fulfill them, or they kill us when we find that whatever we got doesn't satisfy. That's all of us think. If we can just get to this thing or that thing, we will finally be whole. As as if the the path to salvation is self-discovery and self-expression. It isn't. I wish there was a more profound way to say it. I just, I can't think of one right now. But, but ask anybody that has lived a while, that's gotten things they were sure would, would do the trick. There isn't a more lonelier, difficult moment in life than when you finally get what you were sure would give you life and it lets you down. That's a brutal place to be. And here is Jesus calling out to us, I'm the bread of life. Uh, really, can you uh, get me a new job? Because if you can't, I, I don't get it. The point of Jesus is that we need a Savior. Which means, if we can hear Him, Jesus is the only one addressing the deepest need of humanity. You and I are fooled by the moment. We're fooled by the feeling. We're fooled by the occasion. We buy it hook, line, and sinker every time. But we're born under the wrath of God. We're born separated from our Creator. And we cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot work hard enough or long enough to bridge the gap. So when the time came for God to truly and finally and fully address our greatest need, God did not send an instruction manual. God sent His Son. God sent a Savior. And to the degree that we see Jesus' biggest responsibility or biggest point in our lives to provide us with things, again, that we would want whether we ever were born again or not, when we see Jesus as the means primarily to those things, to answer those questions, we will always find Him lacking, always find Him like like what's really the point, always find Him unfair, unconcerned, distant, not trustworthy. But He's never been anything but honest with us. Jesus Christ is the only person actually being honest with us. You remember how we saw that the pronouncement from Jesus that we can finally cease our labor to get God's approval and just 
believe in His Son as our Savior and have eternal life didn't satisfy or comfort that crowd? I, I don't know that it satisfies or comforts crowds any more now than it did then. It's a hard thing to consider, but maybe we still don't believe our greatest need is what He identifies as our greatest need. Okay? When, 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 when you come in here Sunday after Sunday, when we come in here Wednesday after Wednesday, just, just for a moment, think, what do you expect from me? Do you get tired of hearing about Christ crucified for sinners? Do you wish I'd preach about other things? Yeah, I, I imagine often you do. I, I, I had a... Where I was before, I had a, a guy, a good friend, come in the office. His family was leaving the church, which that happens, you know, but, but I, 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 I said, you know, what, what it, can you just tell me what it is? And he said, well... You preach about the sufficiency of Jesus every Sunday. Sorry. Right? I mean, and look, that doesn't... The point is not... The point's not me. Like, I'm the only guy that preaches the sufficiency of Jesus. There's thousands upon thousands. That's not the point. The point is like, like dude, you have a wife and children. What do you think they need? Like, you could you watch Dr. Phil and Oprah if you want to, like, a kicker every week. That's not what I do. Right? Scratching ears do not obligate, itching ears don't obligate me to scratch. Beloved, you, there is also a personal element here. Like, I need this as much as I think you need it. Like, we need this. It doesn't care if we realize it or not. The problem is we usually don't. We need it. The wheat gets away from us really fast. I bet if you, if we surveyed each other, if we really knew each other, you'd find out that by the time Monday afternoon rolls around, there are some of us in here barely hanging on, and we gotta make it all the way to next Sunday. That's where life is. Like, it, it's not that other things don't matter. It's that when we gather, I have, I have, what do I have? If you come to all three services, if you do, what do I get, 45 minutes or so a pop three times a week to plead with you not to lose sight of Jesus? Now, you're going to hear all kinds of other messages for hours upon hours from your co-workers and your family and your kids and your TV and the Internet and the media. If I get those little spots, we preach Christ crucified every time. Or I'm wasting your time. And, and the more we think, no, 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 I need something else, the more we need Christ crucified. I'm telling you, it's all we have. It's all we have. You and I don't need food that perishes to have eternal life. It, it won't give us eternal life. This isn't an echo chamber. This is a proclamation chamber. Do you believe this? Do, 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 you, do you know Beloved, do you know? Now this is gonna, all this is about to sound crazy. Did you know that you don't need a perfect marriage to have bread for your soul? You don't need kids who never blow it or make shipwreck of their own lives or kids who always make you proud. You don't need those things to have bread for your soul. Did you know that? 
You don't need that raise at work to be bread for your soul. And I'm, look, I'm not saying that like I don't know that we might struggle financially. But remember, you're always going to have your basket. You, you've got to know that. You've got to know that. You don't need to move somewhere else to have bread for your soul. You know, you, 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 look, it, it's getting really scary. Really scary, but we, we actually don't need a certain kind of president to have bread for our souls. We don't. Why is that a hard sell? Why is that a hard sell? We don't need certain laws to pass and others to fall to have bread for our souls. And look, it isn't that any of those things are bad. They're not. That, that, that's. But we are too seduced by those things on our own to keep them from becoming ultimate to us. We're too seduced by them. We don't need food that perishes to have eternal life. We need Jesus all day, every day. It's not that God has not answered our needs. It's that we want a different answer often. When God promised to meet all our needs, that means... Think about I close with this. Think, think about that. In Philippians, when God promises to meet all of our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus, that means one of two things. I don't need then anything I don't have, or I would have it, or God's a liar. Right? Do, when you read, do you think God is not keeping His promise to you? That's why we need bread. You said you'd supply all my needs according to... Your riches and glory, why don't I have this? The one that walks on water is saying, you, you don't need that. You have me. He didn't come to give bread, mainly. He came to be bread. He came to be our salvation, not be the key to finding it in other things. When God saw the need of humanity, what he sent was bread that gives life to the world. His son, come to him and you will no longer hunger. Believe in Him, and you will never thirst. Ask for forgiveness. He will be it. Ask for righteousness. He will be it. Ask for life. He will be it. He is the bread that gives life to our souls. Beloved. I'm going to pray. The front is open if you want to come, and then we'll share the Lord's Supper together. Father, I ask that now we would consider the truth of your word by the power and guidance of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would not let us listen to the lying voices inside that tell us this isn't good enough. Lord, the incarnation means that you will go all the way to rescue us. And so I pray that you would do that this morning for each one of us. Have your way. Watch over our souls. Bring the dead to life this morning. Sustain the living this morning, I pray. And ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.